Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Welcome to the show. My name is Dr. Moto. I am zooming in from a remote and mystical uh, um, environment, and I'm surrounded by an excellent cast of guests and panellists. On the show with me today are the veteran um, panellists Cam, or uh, Dr. Patient, I should say, and there is also Dr. Training Wheels. And we have um, Panel Beater, our veteran um, panel master, operating the um, radio panel for us in the studio. So thank you very much, Panel Beater. On the show this morning, we have um, Chris, who is from the Myositis Foundation, talking to us about this very debilitating and very little known condition. So welcome, Chris. Thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Dr. Moto. It's a pleasure to be with you and thanks for the opportunity. Wonderful. And avid listeners, listeners to the show will remember last week, Dr. Nick and his team um, presented a segment on radio um, on radiotherapy about psychotherapy um, and the different types of psychotherapy, as well as psychotherapy in the COVID normal world when everything has transitioned to um, therapy, face to face therapy that has gone remote and over a virtual um, telehealth um, context. And I thought I'd follow up a little bit on that segment by getting a couple of colleagues and friends on the show um, this morning. We have Dr. Michael and Dr. Dion, who are psychiatrists and psychologists, respectively, who are um, um, uh, psychotherapists in their own rights. And they practice a particular type of um, psychotherapy that uses one's emotions, their emotional responses, and how they convey emotions to understand the root cause of patients' psychological issues and distress. I will not let the cat out of the bag. I will let Michael and Dion talk about their craft in more elegant ways that, than I can. But um, to start with, welcome, Dion, and welcome, Michael. It's great to have you guys on the show. Yeah, thank, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Good morning, Dr. Moto. Good morning, everybody. Pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Okay, well, let's get on to it. So this morning, we'll just start with a couple of news items. Um, and um, I will share a study that was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry at the start of this year. Um, and it was a very interesting study in that it compared um, mental health before and during the COVID-19 pandemic in two UK populational cohorts, and both were longitudinal um, observational um, sampled um, data. So you have um, data from two populational cohorts, one in southwest England and the other in Scotland. Um, and they looked at rates of depression and anxiety as well as other mental health conditions pre the pandemic as well as post the pandemic and compared whether there was in fact any difference at all. Maybe before I let the results speak for themselves. What do you think, training wheels? Do you think there's going to be any difference in that regard? And if so, do you think depression or anxiety is going to um, come, come out on top as being um, more uh, overrepresented during the pandemic? 
Uh, having not read the paper, I reckon my gut feeling would be that anxiety is coming out on top in the COVID era. We've all got a lot more to be worried about since the pandemic's sort of been at front of mind over the last year and a bit. And I think a lot of us have lost our usual coping strategies during lockdowns, like having a, you know, rich social life and, um, you know, countless ways that we've we've lost our ways of, you know, uh, looking after our mental health. So I would think probably depression and anxiety are worse, but I, if I had to pick one, I'd say anxiety would be on top. Yes, I mean, I would have thought it would probably be both um, if I had to uh, hazard a guess. Um, so this is particularly another reason why, you know, empirical data such as this can be so revealing. So the study found that um, depression during the pandemic were actually similar to pre-pandemic levels but those experiencing anxiety had almost doubled from about 13 to about 24%. So in these cohorts in Southwest England and uh, Scotland, um, pre-pandemic, let's say circa 10 to 13% of people experienced anxiety. Um, during the pandemic, that rate almost doubled to almost a quarter. And they also found that um, anxiety was more common in young people um, in women, um, those with pre-existing mental and physical health conditions, as well as individuals in um, social economically um, adverse um, situations. Um, drawing from my own experience working at a large metropolitan hospital um, for the past uh, decade or so, um, at the height of the pandemic, myself and some other uh, mental health clinicians bandied together and started a initiative to provide our colleagues in frontline settings some psychological support um, and we operated a peer support phone service um, and all the callers that we received did report issues such as uncertainty such as anxiety and many of them did have um, pre-existing um, vulnerabilities if you'd like in this regard and um, it really sort of uh, was heightened as a result of um, the virus and the pandemic and you know how it changed our world. Is this something that you observed as well in your practices Dion and Michael? Yeah especially in the first uh, weeks and months uh, people certainly were focusing a lot on how it was affecting their life and uh, well it was particularly noticeable because there were a few people who lost employment during the during that time and had massive impact on their lives and yeah understandably their mental health as well yeah it was yeah in my experience it's, it was initially the anxiety presentations that were increasing and it's slowly tended towards more of a depression kind of presentation coming in so it's sort of like seems to sort of alter its presentation through the the course of the pandemic i would suggest yes absolutely and as always, um, to the listeners out there, if anything that we discussed today might have um, struck a nerve, if, um, you know, might have um, created some sense of um, distress or discomfort, um, please reach out to the very, very um, uh, expert and um, very responsive um, support services out there, such as Lifeline um, 13 11 14, as well as Beyond Blue. But of course, on the show on radiotherapy, we don't just talk about um, mental health. We also talk about physical health and general health care as well. Um, it all constitutes our sense of integrated well-being 
And I believe, Dr. Patient, you had a news item to share in relation to physical health. Thank you, Dr. Moto. Good morning. Um, today is PTSD Awareness Day, Sunday the 27th of June. And uh, just briefly, the day is organised by Phoenix Australia, and they're aiming to raise awareness about PTSD and the impact of trauma. And uh, SANE is also supporting the day with uh, some awesome social media posts by Sophie and Jess, who are two of SANE's peer ambassadors about living with PTSD and complex PTSD. And you can find that on the SANE website at sane.org. And there is also a bunch of facts, fact sheets on PTSD as well. And uh, look, if, if you're experiencing it or you have a family member that's experiencing it, please, today is your day. So, uh, so jump amongst it and people are listening and people are out there for you. Thank you very much there, Dr. Patient. And um, listeners, please pardon my faux pas. I talked about um, addressing physical health. In fact, that was a news item that Dr. Um, Training Wheels was going to share for us. Yeah, that's right. I, if I, you know, saying happy PTSD Awareness Day doesn't feel quite right, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're, we've got a special day today to acknowledge the people who live with that and, and their families and carers. I um, am changing tack a little bit. I had a colonoscopy on Thursday and I thought what a fun opportunity to talk about cancer screening. <laughs> oh, it's it an important a... topic, Jess, That's and right. um, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased that you live to tell the tale. Mm, just, yeah, it was not fun. Uh, anyone who's had a colonoscopy will sympathise. The drink is absolutely revolting um, and the consequences of the drink are also extremely revolting. <laughs> Um, However, I lived to tell the tale and really it wasn't that bad. Uh, The reason I thought I'd talk about it is because it was timely given my own experience this week, but I just have reflected during the pandemic that it's been difficult for people to take care of their general health, I think, um, with, you know, elective surgeries being on hold on and off as we've been entering lockdowns. During lockdowns, people being hesitant to leave the house for anything but the most urgent medical issues. I think it's been an unfortunate side effect of the COVID pandemic that a lot of our other healthcare needs may have been neglected. So I just wanted to remind listeners of what the recommendations are for cancer screening, um, because it's very important. We know that early detection is the gives, gives people the absolute best chance of recovery and um, treatment success. So that's why screening is so important. And remember, if you're ever not sure, go and see your friendly GP and it's absolutely their bread and butter. They're happy to help you out. But I thought I'd just run through what the recommendations are for age-related cancer screening in Australia at the moment. They are. Remember the cervical cancer screening system has changed now. It used to be pap smears every two years. It's now, it's the same procedure. It's still a um, using a speculum exam and collecting some cells of the endocervix, but it's now every five years and it's screening for HPV. Um, and that's from age 25 to 74 that should be happening every five years for anyone with a cervix. And remember, for if any doctors or patients who might be trans but have a cervix or intersex people who have a cervix, you still need to get cervical screening. It's not just women. And I know that trans patients and intersex patients sometimes do ne- get neglected with this sort of gender-related cancer screening. So just keep that in mind. If you have a cervix, you need to get cervical cancer screening. 
Same thing for breast cancer. If you have breasts or breast tissue, you need to get breast cancer screening. And that's a mammogram every two years from ages 50 to 74. And the other recommendation is breast awareness, which means just self-examining your breasts. I think the recommendation is once a month, but I just sort of do it every time I think to. Um, that's, you know, a pretty easy one. Easy to forget, but also pretty easy to do. And then the other one is bowel cancer. And the recommendation there is to do the fecal occult blood test, which is where you send your poo off in little tubes. And that should be every two years from ages 50 to 74. Um, with all of these cancer screening programs, if you have high, a, a strong family history, you, you may be recommended to start your screening earlier. So that was my experience. That's why I had my colonoscopy because I've got strong family history. And again, if you're not sure, speak to your GP. Prostate cancer is the sort of controversial one. Some people recommend having a PSA, which is a blood test from age 60. Some people don't recommend it. It's the, the guidelines vary because it can, the PSA isn't a perfect test. Like I said, if you're not sure, speak to your GP. It's a, the PSA, the prostate cancer screening requires a little bit more thought than the others. Uh, to talk about the risks and benefits. So speak to your GP about that one and see if it's appropriate for you. Uh, and then, of course, you know, just see your GP at least once a year if you can, just to do a general checkup of all the important things. Don't let the pandemic make you forget about the rest of your healthcare. That's the takeaway. Thank you, Training Wheels. Thank you for those public health um, and, and um, cancer awareness um, announcements. They are certainly very timely reminders. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. We are doing our best trying to do this remotely, navigating the internet bandwidth, navigating Zoom. We've got seven people on Zoom at the moment, just trying to coordinate everything together. And we have an amazing show for you coming up. To start with, I would like to formally invite Chris, who is the president of the Myositis Society. Chris, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, tell us about myositis and why it's important. Myositis is a rare inflammatory muscle condition. Um, it's not known exactly how many people are affected, but in our experience, it's somewhere from 9 to 15 per million. It's one of the rare diseases in the world, but there are 7,000 rare diseases. So it's um, very unlikely that anyone's GP will have, ex have come across another patient with myositis. So for that reason, we're really keen to get the message out um, and for the symptoms to be identified by GPs more readily. But more importantly, for, for GPs as quickly as possible to refer the patients on to neurologists or rheumatologists. Chris, what's um, the condition? The condition is an inflammatory condition so that um, that results in the muscles getting weak. And the there are various forms of the disease. Myositis is a collective term for about four different versions. Um, and it in the most common version, which is called inclusion body myositis, or IBM as we like to know it, um, it's the most common, as I've just mentioned, and the specific muscles affected there are the, the back of the calves, 
and the thighs, sometimes the fingers and the hands and the throat muscles. And the progression can be very subtle in the early stages and progress um, quite slowly. And so when people present at GPs, it's often assumed that perhaps they're just ageing. But I think what GPs need to comprehend is that if someone is talking about a, a muscle loss or muscle change, it really is quite profound to them. And things like being able to get off the floor are no longer possible or get out of chairs, get off the toilet becomes harder, get out of bed. They might have difficulty with swallowing. Um, and those sort of quite subtle changes are, are often the early signs. And if they're picked up at that stage and um, referred on, a neurologist could then perform MRIs on the most affected areas, maybe an EMG, uh, and ultimately a muscle biopsy is normally needed to identify the condition. Um, but if the patient with IBM, which is currently incurable and there's no satisfactory treatment, um, if that patient starts exercising and, and working on those muscles specifically, they may retain mobility for longer or at least, you know, just hold the strength that they have in their other muscles. Um, the exercise though needs to be really carefully tailored to make sure that the, the, the affected muscles don't get more fatigued. Um, that, so that's the most common form. But then there are other forms as well where proximal muscles close to the body are more affected, uh, polymyositis and dermatomyositis and necrotizing myositis. Um, they're very complex conditions and the, the weakness in those cases occurs in the shoulders and the hips, sometimes in the um, lower limbs as well. But with similar difficulties of struggling to get off, chair, off the floor, out of chairs, off the toilet, but also to reach up, wash people's hair, uh, maybe hang out the washing, raise hands to lift heavy things, they all become very difficult. Um, my, polymyositis my and dermatomyositis, necrotizing myositis are more likely to present more dramatically than IBM. And so um, perhaps uh, um, have some more standout features that are more likely to be detected in the early stages. But dermatomyositis is particularly um, complex because, as the name suggests, it also involves the skin. So it's very difficult for a GP, for example, to put together these weirdo symptoms that include um, a butterfly rash on the skin or around the, the chest or, or neck, um, maybe ulcers on the fingers and um, maybe a rash elsewhere, say on the elbows or ankles, together with the muscle weakness. But not only that, it can also affect internal organs, major internal organs, um, and require really quite radical attention and radical treatment. Um, for polymyositis and dermatomyositis, there are some treatments. The first line is normally heavy doses of prednisolone, uh, but then, if possible, weaned off that and other um, sort of bone-sparing medications are used. And intravenous immunoglobulin is also quite a successful treatment for particularly dermatomyositis. So, Chris, um, from what I'm hearing so far, it's a particularly intriguing condition 
that can affect multiple parts of the body, starting with the muscles, um, and it can also masquerade as anything else. Um, it can, it, because the initial symptoms are so subtle um, and often starts with muscle weakness um, and aches and pains. So it really makes the diagnostician or the doctor's job extremely difficult to think about this nice and early and um, to be able to instigate that early intervention, as you suggested. What, what do you think, training wheels? I've just got a couple of questions. I'm wondering if there's an early detection test for these sorts of conditions. You know, you're, you're, you've been discussing that it's difficult sometimes for GPs to pick these things up. Is there a simple blood test that could sort of point them in the right direction? And my other question is, you mentioned that it seems sometimes it masquerades as sort of frailty or normal age-related changes. Is it something that you see increasing in prevalence as patients age? The blood test issue is a good one, Jess, because the, the most obvious blood test, and this could be organised by the GP immediately, is a, a CK test. It's not definitive, but it can be helpful. And particularly in the cases of polymyositis and dermatomyositis, most people would have quite an elevated CK. We've had a recent example in our membership with a man with necrotizing myositis who had an extraordinary CK of 30,000 by the time he was in hospital. So he was dramatically weak um, as well. But and there is another blood test called the myositis panel, which is a fairly recent test, and it detects antibodies which um, not only are indicative of myositis, but also can give some prediction as to how it's going to transpire as a, as a disease in that particular person. And there are now um, sort of known antibodies that have particular symptoms that help the cl clinicians to hone in on the best treatment and the outcome of the disease. Uh, in terms of age, it's interesting because it, in, with IBM, most patients are over 50, um, but certainly amongst our membership, we have younger patients as well. So that makes it particularly confusing for GPs when a younger patient in their 30s or 40s is presenting with these symptoms that suggest age-related conditions. And I, I was 47 when I was first showing some of those subtle changes, and that's not an unusual thing in our cohort you know it can take five six years to get a diagnosis because the changes are subtle um, and not necessarily stand out for particular age groups yes and um, just bringing the listeners into the fold with our discussion um, the couple of tests that Chris mentioned that can be helpful to make the diagnosis of myositis were one a enzyme called CK or creatine kinase it's an enzyme that's found in muscle tissue um, and it gets uh, it seeps into the bloodstream when there is muscle damage. Um, and um, the other one is a specific antibody test for this condition. The difficulty, I suppose, Chris, is still that the CK is in a very non-specific test. You know, you can have an elevated CK um, detectable in blood tests in various different conditions. So it, it is a it's, it's a very very hidden, subservious kind of a condition, isn't it? It is, and um, it does 
even even after a referral to a neurologist or a rheumatologist, it can still take some time, of course, to explore all the the possibilities and. Um, each of those tests, like MRI and EMG, they're they're almost a trial and error. You, you're looking to see what can be found, and then um, if something's found, maybe that might lead to a muscle biopsy. And um, in some respects, of course, that's quite exciting when you get to a muscle biopsy, biopsy with uh, a conclusive um, report. But it's just the beginning of then having to work through: is there any sort of treatment that might help and assist or uh, and what does this mean um and it's none of these conditions are curable so at this stage it's it is going to be something that you'll have to adapt to to live with and with some success of a treatment or or maybe not Um, exercise as I mentioned is the best thing at this stage that we can all do for ourselves but you know as just as you've had earlier on the program there's a significant mental health issue with most of our patients because we're very isolated, being rare, we're not well known. We um, may live long lives with this condition and having an overload of pandemic issues on top is really quite a handful. Um, also, I just briefly mentioned that in the case of dermatomyositis, cancer can be very prevalent, particularly in the first couple of years after diagnosis. And so it's really important, as Jess was mentioning, to do that full screening of cancer checks um, and do them probably more regularly than the standard um, suggested. Absolutely. Chris, thank you so much for sharing with us your story. Thank you for sharing with the listeners um, this um, very debilitating um, and very little known condition. Um, From your standpoint, representing the Myositis Association, where can people find you? Where can people find a bit more information about this condition? Our website um, has a lot of content, and we're in the process at the moment of updating that, um, myositis.org.au. There's a phone number on the, the site, and that can be called. That goes directly to our secretary. We're a volunteer organisation, and we have ourselves organised in such a way that we've got coordinators around the country in each state and we can put you in touch with the local coordinator. We also have um, a really comprehensive list of specialist doctors in every state, and that's a very important thing as soon as possible to find um, the right sort of specialist who's got an interest in the condition because of its unusual nature and and a history. We've also got some great research going on in Australia, and there is a clinical trial, a phase three clinical trial, about to start in August in Perth and involving patients across Australia and overseas. So that's an exciting development. So we're very um, you know, aware and involved with the disease and assisting patients at the grassroots level. That's terrific. Chris, thank you so much again for coming onto the show. Please do stick around and um, I certainly um, wish you all the best and also wish the researchers trying to progress understanding and treatment of this condition all the best as well moving forward. I suppose we thank- all need a I suppose we all need a beacon of hope in these um, difficult times and, you know, and trying to better understand and treat difficult conditions such as myositis. And, of course, um, it'll be remiss of me to not mention that all our hearts go out to our um, brothers and sisters in New South Wales who are currently, um, uh, who have just um, gone into a lockdown. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On the show with me, uh, um, panellists who is helping us in the studio, broadcasting this on air for you guys. Um, there are the veteran panellists, Dr. Patient and Dr. Training Wheels, and our guests this morning, uh, Chris from the Myositis um, Association of Australia, as well as um, psychodynamic psychotherapists, Dr. Michael Kimber and Dr. Dion. Dion, I'm going to attempt your last name, but um, I don't uh, want to do it any injustice. I'll let you introduce yourself in a second. Um, Michael and Dion, love to hear from you guys and um, your work and how things have um, changed since COVID and needing to transition to um, telehealth um, psychotherapy. Um, But before perhaps we do, tell us what exactly is psychotherapy? Um, I know that we covered this last week at Dr. Nick's show, but um, particularly what is the type of therapy that you do? What is psychotherapy, but also what is psychodynamic psychotherapy? How does it all fit in? Oh, well, I guess uh, I could start with the first question, I suppose. What is psychotherapy? Uh, yeah, it's uh, I feel like it's a big question, but uh, I was thinking about it. It's uh, It's trying to help someone with uh, usually with mental health trouble, but sometimes relationship problems as well. Um, And trying to use our understanding of psychology to try and help them uh, improve what's going on for them. I think one core feature of psychotherapy is it usually involves interaction with someone. You know, the common is it's one-on-one, you're interacting with someone who's trying to help you, but Sometimes psychotherapy involves a group of people interacting with each other again. And often I think a core part of psychotherapy is it's, it's a, you know, it's a relationship with, you know, usually two people, but sometimes a number of people trying to help each other um, using some, just some core elements of a human relationship of, of being caring and listening and you know, being, being there for someone. I think these are important parts of what makes up, what psychotherapy is um and given that that can cover a range of things psychotherapy can be you know very variable there's lots of different ways of doing it so it's treatment through talking but of course as you articulated there's so much more to that there is an emotional exchange there is listening there is detecting um unconscious and conscious connotations and emotions would that be a a, a, a fair summary yeah yeah i agree yeah and uh you know thinking about it now it, it reminds me of just how complicated that can be and how many different ways you can potentially do it and um i think you could argue that you know well i think there's some research that shows that often what matters more is 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 the common features just being there for someone listening caring that often makes most of the difference Uh, and then all the different ways you do is just the extra stuff just to try and help it be as effective as possible sort of adding to the common things yes absolutely and it's something that um dr nick and dr jordana rockman last week spoke about as well now i'm Interested to hear, Dion, perhaps your explanation to our listeners. What is psychodynamic psychotherapy? 
psychodynamic therapy is a, a form of therapy that's based on you know different assumptions as to sort of say cognitive behavioral therapy. So the, the main assumptions or the main way of differentiating it is we can sort of look at things as either a top-down process or a bottom-up process. So the top-down process is like something that we do in psychotherapy where we're trying to go into understanding people's thoughts and, and their behaviours as a, a response to those thoughts or to those beliefs that people hold, whereas a, a bottom-up process is about trying to get into and trying to have an understanding of people's conditions or difficulties based on other processes separate to thoughts, such as emotions and attachments, uh, you know, the way that we relate to each other. So psychodynamic therapies is referred to as something that's sort of more akin to a, a bottom-up process that we're trying to understand people from the inside and how they operate and why they operate in certain ways. So it's, you know, it's got histories in understanding of people's emotional um, processes and how that stems and sometimes that have the influence of their childhoods impact on the development of those emotional processes. And I'm going to ask the <laughs> potentially very difficult question to answer, but um, perhaps even in a practical or a mechanistic sense, how do you go about doing that? How do you, how, how do you inspire or how do you encourage someone to dig deep and share with you um, some of these um, long sort of covered up or um, potentially avoided or forgotten um, emotional content from their childhood and their upbringing and why is it relevant today? Great questions. I mean, the, the mechanisms that we use is obviously talking to people. And when we talk to people, what we're looking for is not just the verbal responses but also the nonverbal responses, the patterns of how people relate, how they respond, how they interact. And we help sort of point out the, the response patterns that people have, you know, in the sessions to us, you know, in discussing certain topics around issues that they're experiencing in their lives now. And we try to understand the history of where those patterns come from. So it's very much, a, you know, about talking about what kind of difficulties people are experiencing now, whether it's a physical problem or a mental health issue, and not just the words that people use, but also the pattern of how they relate to us. And that's very much analogous for we use that as a way of trying to understand how the person's you know neurobiology is also responding to us in the moment as well i would imagine for many people that can be challenging if not sometimes quite confronting so so how do you deal with that what if they what if they get defensive what if they say no no doctor i think you're i think you're wrong it's not an uncommon response from people. You know, it's, it's, we're basing things on an, an assumption and we're trying to work out, you know, we're testing our assumptions and we're not just basing our assumptions on a model or a theory. We're sharing our assumptions that what we're seeing in the sessions or what we're seeing in the interactions with people and asking them to think about it and to consider whether they believe there's any, you know, relevant information in what they're doing in that they're not aware of, bringing it to their attention and helping them critique it or reflect on it themselves and then encouraging them to become more self-aware and self-reflective of themselves, not to be critical or confrontational, but it can seem that way at times because, you know, we don't always want to be exposed to things that we've been covering up for a long time. So we expect a level of defensiveness from anybody who comes in and that's respected and appreciated because there's times when that's actually been protective. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what, what you say all makes sense. Um, and just as I was listening to you and, and being a psychiatrist myself, I, I realized that, you know, um, this is such a huge topic. In fact, we must get you back on the show another time to do it real justice. I mean, you know, this is the one therapy that has probably been around the longest that we still use in modern psychiatry today. You know, um, psychodynamically oriented psychotherapy has been around since the late 1800s. And it's the only treatment we still use now in psychiatry um, um, that has lasted, you know, a, a more than one millennium. Um, but perhaps in a, in, in, a, in a succinct manner, I suppose, Michael, can you share with us maybe just, you know, one instance or, or one patient, one patient presentation where they presented with this and that emotional psychological problem and how you were able to point out um, what some of the previously uncovered and un misunderstood um, conflicts were and, you know, how the patient came to that realisation and what impact or change that has had on his or her life. Is that something you'd be able to share? Well, yes, I'll, 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 I'll do my best. Um... I think um, what I notice most is um, as you're sort of on the journey of helping the person, you, you know, person in front of you know themselves better and understand what's happening, um, what I notice most is they learn most about how, uh, how, what they're thinking about themselves and what their beliefs are and some of the ways they're behaving and the impact that they're having on them. Um, I think as you continue the journey, you get deeper and deeper. But what I notice most is just that um, what they learn about themselves just uh, as they're going about their day, just how things are operating now. Um, um, and just to give an example, uh, it was probably a while ago now, I remember one of the patients I was seeing um, had a bit of a, a breakthrough when he realised just how little he was thinking about his own needs and and what was important to him like he he just been operating all this for such a long time always thinking about you know what does this person need how do i help this person you know what should i do now so that this person gets what they want or so that they're happy and yeah and it was quite a breakthrough for him to to really think hard and think you know, really be aware of what about him, you know, how, how much has he, had he been thinking about him? Um, and yeah, he, he was, he, he told me after that, that it really made quite a difference. You know, he, he was really thinking about himself quite differently after that. And uh, he even said that the way he'd been thinking about himself did change. His thoughts about himself had been quite negative a lot of the time and, and that actually improved a bit uh, after that. Um, some breakthrough we had is that, uh, uh, is that is that a good example that did, what, what do you think Moto? yeah absolutely very very elegant example of sort of um yeah basically lifting the blindfold of somebody um of a pattern of relating and pattern of um um behaving and contextualizing relationships um that you know had previously um been um the person had been in the dark about Dion what what did you think what did you think so I was going to talk about like different different kind of presentations, like people who present with you know physical symptoms as well. So I, you know, I used to work in a, a gastro department at a hospital in Melbourne, and one of the things that we 
would see is a lot of people presenting with gut-related issues. And so what we've been able to identify just by helping people understand how their bodies respond when they're being interviewed, when we talk about specific emotional, you know, experiences, whether they're past or present even, that people would start to manifest with a certain kind of physiological presentation in their bodies and begin to experience some of the, the gut-related symptoms. And we could very quickly help them recognise the, the connection between the mind and the body and how their bodies would respond when they're talking about, you know, emotional content. And just by doing that on its own, it would help relieve people of their symptoms without even having to identify whether there was a, a relational trauma in somebody's past or not. There certainly is um, a reason why, you know, we coined that phrase gut instinct. Dr. Patient. Yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks, Dr. Moreau. Um, Michael and Dion, as a, as a patient with complex mental health needs, like I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, it was recently recommended to me to consider uh, psychotherapy over psychiatry and it was briefly explained that my medication is stable I don't need to uh, readjust that and because this is the first time I'm really getting back into therapy in, in a good 15 years what what does it look like for someone with complex mental health uh, issues to to choose psychotherapy over psychiatry say for ongoing ongoing therapy and treatment yeah Great question. I think, you know, the, the one thing that stands out for me is what you're developing in psychotherapy, you know, is a relationship. And it's about being able to form a healthy therapeutic relationship with between two people and to use that relationship to help explore some of some things in, you know, from past and present in a safe and useful manner. Yeah, and uh, uh, it's... Uh a question I have put a lot of thought in being a psychiatrist myself and and a therapist because I uh, uh, I do a bit of a mixture. I do mostly therapy, but I do occasionally help with the sort of more psychiatry medication side of things as well. Um, and yeah, and I, I'm thinking about it similarly to Dion that in the end. Uh, therapy is, you know, as with all therapy, it comes down to two people working together to help. Uh, the relationship is very important. And uh, I think what is really important with psychotherapy is to be able to tailor what you're doing to the person in front of you, what they really need. Um, and, you know, someone with more complex needs, you obviously would need to take that into consideration. Um I think generally I, I occasionally get referred, you know, I have a mixture of patients I help, you know, and some of the patients I help have m more complex needs. And I think the usual strategy, I think, is to, uh, you know, go slow, you know, if, uh, if, if there's any doubt, you know, take your time and make sure you understand the person. Um, and I suppose the other side, which we kind of alluded to earlier, is I. I'd see it as a partnership. You know, the the person you're helping, they're the expert on their life and what they're going through and what they're experiencing. So, you know, you, you can bring in your uh, your knowledge of, of therapy or medis medications potentially, but it's yeah, ends absolutely up being a partnership. I certainly yeah. think it'll be complementary. Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. 
Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. 